Hey there, Internet. I can't know for sure, but I'm going to go ahead and guess that you woke up this morning thinking, hey, if only there was a place I could hear a bunch of cool people talk about video games. Well, then we've got a show for you. From developer interviews to casual conversation, from exciting indie titles to fresh takes on your favorite games, this is the Gamers with Glasses Podcast. Hi folks, this is Dead Gamers with Glasses Show, and I'm Christian Haynes, one of the editors of the website GamersWithGlasses.com. Gamers with Glasses is a gathering place for fans, scholars, artists, and developers who like to play and think about games. Today I'm happy to be joined by Roger Whitson. Hello. Nate Schmidt. Hi there. And Edsel Centron Gonzalez. Hello. And this week, our special topic... Uh, is going to be platformer games, your Marios, your Little Nightmares, your, I don't know, dozens of other games you've been playing since you were probably eight years old. Uh, But we're also going to start out by talking about the games we're playing now, uh, like we always do. And so why don't we just jump right into that? And Roger, why don't you start us off with what sounds like an awful game to me, uh, Ghosts and Goblins Resurrection. Awful, by the way, because it sounds really hard. It wasn't easy. Um, So I picked up this game just because of nostalgia's sake. I, I can't say that I... I played a lot of Ghosts and Goblins when I was younger, but I always was attracted to the game in the arcade. And I would I would put the 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 quarter in and I would probably make it halfway through the level if I was lucky. And then I would die and that would be it. And I would and I would be like, wow, this is a hard game. Uh I should probably not play it again. But I would always forget because it was like a night guy that like threw through lances and it was really awesome and he was fighting goblins and stuff so this is uh basically it's actually a really beautiful game um there's this kind of tapestry hand-drawn kind of style that um they use to recreate uh the uh arthur and his and his journey to uh, save the princess um they don't really change the story at all they don't really like uh go that much into the story it's very simple um it's pretty um, and it's, it's definitely extremely hard. So I totally took the, I was trying to get ready for this, for this podcast. And I was like, I'm not getting anywhere. So I, I, I took the easy way out and, um, put it on the easy mode where you just get resurrected where you die. And I beat it, but it was still really hard. Like it was so hard. I was really stressed out and it was, and it was, I was invincible, like basically, right? But it still freaked me out. I was stressed out. There was a one, uh, one part of the game where you have to like climb up these these this ladder and then 
jump on these platforms that are disappearing. And, and meanwhile, there are these like uh, swarms of locusts that are coming after you. And uh, it was just very overwhelming. I, I yelled a lot. And so um, if you're really into that, um, you're going to find that in Ghosts and Goblins. Uh, Wait, into what? Into being overwhelmed and yelling? Like, yeah, if you're, you're really, if you're really okay. into masochistic style gameplay, and like, I you meant I, plagues I, of locusts. I think there are different styles of masochistic <laughs> gameplay. Like, I'm really into Dark Souls. I like that part of masochism, uh, but for whatever reason, this type was not uh, the same type of masochism for me. Did you hear, isn't there a part where you, like, hit the guy, like, is in his undies? Well, yes. If you, yeah. so you basically, Arthur basically starts out with armor. You basically have two hits um, in the regular type style gameplay. Now, when you go down to the more easy levels, you get more hits. But <clears throat> basically what happens is, like, you start out, you're Arthur, you have armor on. And then if you're if you're lucky, you can get a power up. You can get this gold armor that'll give you an extra hit. Um, but if you get hit while with the armor on, then you're just running around in your underwear, uh, boxers, which are not uh, the the big uh, the big reveal of this game. It's is the that strawberries. That's what I was hoping. Strawberries. Yes. They're not hearts. And not hearts. <laughs> they're not hearts. Yeah. So we've finally. All that's, that's the only reason I brought up the undies. I wanted to make sure we got on the table that they're strawberries. <laughs> it's a thirty-year mystery. It's been the object of speculation by fans for for ever since the original Ghosts and Goblins. It feels like there has to be a Pac-Man connection there, right? Like some kind of throwback there um but i don't know so i would say it's 30 bucks too so like that's a little steep for like what is essentially a five-hour game if you are good i mean it makes up for the fact i guess by being incredibly difficult so maybe that's where people get the gameplay out of but it is basically a five-hour journey um so a little a little pricey um but, you know, if you're really into that stuff, I know that Ghosts and Goblins has its hardcore fans. Um, they're definitely going to pick it up. So. so my hard game that I'm playing right now is Fights in Tight Spaces, but I actually highly recommend it. It's uh, made by Ground Shatter. And I actually want to say it's published by Bithel Games, uh, like Mike Bithel. Um and it is a basically imagine a card-based roguelike game, but John Wick style. It's like or imagine like turning like John Wick style action into a card game that's roguelike. It's not easy. Every move counts, and each move is like a card, right? So like you play a card to punch somebody in the throat. <laughs> you you play a card to like take somebody's knee out with your knee, right? Or you play a card to dodge or to move this two steps to the left, two steps to the right. Um, and as the title suggests, fights in tight spaces, right? Each level is a tight space. Positioning is really important. So you have like a grid that you can move around on. And really the goal in each level is not just to like hit the enemies and get as much damage to them, but also to make them hit each other by dodging. 
So some of the most powerful cards in it are actually the ones that are just movement cards where it's just like take two steps to the right and you do that and then one enemy shoots another enemy because of that, which is just the most satisfying thing in a the world. There's nothing more satisfying than one enemy taking out another enemy because of your like small action. Um, but it's hard, right? Like I've managed, so it's divided up into like levels, but the levels are also sort of packaged in these larger like quest arcs. And I've managed, I think, to get past like the first two quest arcs out of five. And it's still an early access, but it's one of those early access, uh, instances where it feels like they really have 90% of the game and I think they're really just trying to get the balance right so card cost uh things like that like how much each card costs to play uh how frequent the card different cards show up it feels like that's what they're trying to do with basically having a beta um and that seems to be working like the updates that I've had seem to make the gameplay smoother but I I like there is like a I know it doesn't sound like very long but in my like covid addled like child addled um brain uh like i played this game for like three days just every chance i could get and it was just exhilarating in the way that i don't think i felt exhilarated by a card game since slay the spire when i was really into that highly recommend and it has a really cool art style i think i'm gonna write it up for the website but it has a like a silhouette style art style that reminds me of the opening of james bond movies um and just like it's really nice and and i brought up that it was published i'm pretty sure by bithel games because i think it's funny that the i think last game that bithel uh published before he did the solitaire game was john wick hex so like an actual licensed john wick game that's also turn-based so this is like now we'll do the card based one different developer um like bithel actually wrote the code for uh his john wick game but i don't know it's just a funny thing but yeah that's that's I as folks maybe know like I'm constantly playing different card games and trying them out and now there's no shortage of them and this is I think one of the best that I've played in a while along with another game that I'll talk about some other time called Trials of Fire um, do you feel like John Wick when you're playing this game or do you feel like not John Wick you know Cause... when a level goes well I do and it's helped by the fact that at the end of each level you can do a replay that's in like a smoother motion, right? Oh, that just like turns it like, and it's like, you know, it's not completely smooth, like, cause it's not rendered. It's just through a kind of animation algorithm that takes the different moves that you've done and mashes them together. But it's just enough to make you feel sort of like a badass in a card game, right? Like who knew we would get there? I didn't know like, you know, 11 year old me that was playing, like the Tempest release of Magic the Gathering in like 1995 or 96 oh, or something, like did not know that at some point I would be doing like action movie card game on a computer. Yeah. Despite having played uh, Sid Meier's wonderful uh, computer version of Magic the Gathering from like 99 or something. Gosh, I didn't do any of that stuff. That's interesting. That game was like my favorite game when it came out. Oh my god, Sid Meier did a Magic: The Gathering game. Never forget. <laughs> For real. For real. Oh my god. And they're still good. I mean, there's you know, I don't know. It's kind of a bad cheater thing to do because Wizards of the Coast is always trying to shut them down. But Cockatrice is. Have, have anybody ever used Cockatrice? Anybody here? It's great. 
It's free and it's got a database of all the cards. If you own a physical deck, you can just build it and load it in there. And then it gives you a little like virtual tabletop to play with your, to, to plan. I've been playing it with my brother like all through the pandemic. And it's like for those who have a decent physical magic you know, set and don't want to turn around and have to reinvest more money into playing like actual MTG online. Uh, like, I don't know. It's been fun. I've enjoyed it. Yeah. My local comic book shop has weekly magic tourneys and I like am always attracted to it, but I haven't played magic since the early 2000s. And it just frightens me the idea of getting back into it because I'm scared about the number of cards I would buy. It's frightening to me because I feel like everyone is so much more advanced than I would ever be. Like, I got to a point in my magic playing where I just could, like, people started using counters. I remember the moment where I first encountered my counter card. And it just felt like, it felt like suddenly I was playing 3D chess. Like, I was like, I was okay with 2D chess. But then it was like, nope, this is actually 3D chess. And I haven't been back. So I think that that's always been kind of my issue. It's not really an issue with, with, with magic. It's just, I just don't, um, it seems like it would be a hard, a hard game to get into at this point. So speaking of 3d, I'm, I'm, I'm I'm changing it. No, no, Nate. (laughs) No, Nate, go ahead. I'm here. No, I just isn't chess a three-dimensional game <laughs> i'm talking i'm making a star, star trek, trek. Reference. come on Nate. it's a star trek reference uh, they actually them from the zoom I call uh, i'm not gonna I, get invited back you oh my god gonna record a bunch of stuff without me and then email it to me to edit later <laughs> i actually found a 3d chess set and i wanted to play it just to like have the experience of it but I've never done that. Well, according to Nate, all chess is 3D. I'm just saying. Um, (laughs) Speaking of 3D things, (laughs) speaking of 3D things, Edsel, our guest on tonight's podcast, is playing Super Mario 3D World, which I think is a highly underrated Mario game. How are you feeling about it, Nate? How are you feeling about it, Edsel? No, um, I love it because when I first played this game, it was for the Wii U, and I know console-wise, there weren't really that many good games for it, but it was one of the few that I really enjoyed playing, and playing on the Switch, and I don't know, just all the aspects, and some of the unique power-ups, like the Cat Mario, for example, it's been really good playing it, but... Other than that, I was really impressed with Bowser's Furies as an add-on for this game for Nintendo Switch. Um, for many of reasons. Um, well, one, like, the graphics and art style is just beautiful, and it really feels like an open-world Mario game. It were thinking back on how usual the 3D Mario platform as a genre works, like, you know, basically you have your main world, and then you just transport to another one and just complete levels and collect your stars, um sprinshides or the moons or whatever the game develops and i don't know i just i've i've enjoyed it for that reason and also um that kind of unique co-op mode where you the second player you plays bowser jr as well has been really interesting in terms of the dynamics of the mechanics and the gameplay i think it's i mean it's funny like 
I just thought about this as you were speaking, Intel, but this is like a weird moment in video game history where Nintendo is taking a bunch of lessons from Ubisoft, though nobody wants to admit it. Like Breath of the <laughs> Wild is basically like Zelda with a dash of Ubisoft, and more than a dash. And now they're doing it with Mario. And it's just a funny thing. Nobody wants to admit it, right? Because everybody loves to hate Ubisoft. And for plenty of good reasons sometimes. But like... There's towers in Mario now. There are towers where you go up to these these lighthouses and you look around to see what you're going to do next, right? I mean, it's like half a step away. Yeah, like, I definitely got Assassin's Creed vibes um, climbing up the towers and just getting a look at the world, what's missing, what's been developed. And actually, now that you mentioned the lighthouse, I found it really interesting how every time you collect these cat sprites... Um, the lighthouse will actually give you some sort of advice or clue or hint um, where to go next or something to keep in mind as you journey through Bowser's Fury. So I thought that was also a really interesting factor within the game as well. And thinking about Nintendo moving forward and also thinking about the recent announcements of the Pokemon remakes, specifically the Arceus one, um, I can definitely see how it's moving towards more open world. And I don't know, I'm, I'm really excited to see what comes next in terms of that you know it's interesting like nintendo has always been kind of just funny in that they when everybody else was turning towards triple a development it's not like they ignored it but they also didn't hop on it in the same way as everybody and part of that's just because they're a japanese studio and japanese work culture is different um and development styles are different but on the other hand it's also just like it's a wonderful kind of obstinacy, even though it's the same obstinacy that like means that their online service perennially sucks, right? Like Nintendo will never figure out the internet, I'm pretty sure, and that's fine uh, because it's probably what keeps their games okay. Um, they've never actually read anybody's tweets about their games. Um, Miyamoto probably doesn't have a Twitter account, uh, that he, at least not one he actually looks at. I'm sure somebody's running a Twitter account for him. Uh, and that's beautiful. That's wonderful. Um, although it means we'll never get Miyamoto's Death Stranding, whatever that would look like. <laughs> it's kind of funny how the like Breath of the Wild was also billed, though, as a return to form to Zelda 1. So, which and I, I do not bring up at all to negate what you're saying, Christian. I totally I agree with you. But it is also interesting how we there is these kind of intersecting ideas of wow like it's so 21st century to have this giant open world but also like there's a sense of exploration that comes with but i i would i'd be curious to hear more because i haven't played anything i mean i think i played through super mario sunshine uh but the last mario game i th 3d mario game i really played through carefully was probably the nintendo 64 one like i have not kept <laughs> stayed stayed up to date with mario so i'd be curious to hear more about like how this uh open world thing uh works like uh, uh, what is open i'm just trying to um, be, ha, explain it to a person who has never seen this game before and can't imagine what an open world Mario would look like. Like, how do you go between level? How do you know when the level's over? Like, how do you, is there an over? Like, I just, I'd like to hear more about what it looks like. There is no flagpole. <laughs> That's how you know. <laughs> what? <laughs> how am I going to get my lives and my bonus games? <laughs> 
So it's interesting. You mentioned Mario Sunshine, one of my favorite 3D Mario platformers. And thinking about it, at least in Mario Sunshine, you have Aldo Fino as like your main stage, and then you have your separate stages going through a portal. But then in Bowser's Furies, it just keeps going. Like you just literally walk from one piece of an island to another. Then you have a little title card that says your specific level, but it's like there's no loading time. Um, once you collect the main item, so um, so for example in Mario Sunshine, every time you collect the Shine Sprite, well you're back to Aldofino, and then you choose which world to go. But then here, just like it, what well, they did in Mario Odyssey with the Moonshines, um, you just keep going, and it's really interesting how they're combining like. What mechanics actually, well, it's not fair to say what mechanics actually work, like, what was more favorable within each of the Mario platformers and combine them towards Bowser's Fury. And it's really interesting how they added all these references from the other games as well, because basically when you first start Bowser's Furies, um, you got the imagery of Mario Sunshine again with the Shadow Mario, um, the paintbrush, and kind of like this ink world that's being infected and the source of Bowser's actual fury. So it's really interesting how these references are going back, but also moving forward towards kind of an experimental genre within the 3D Mario platformer. Yeah, just to be clear, like Nate, there is a giant Bowser lurking in the background that occasionally comes in and just like wrecks everything. Um, and part of what's funny is that like, when he's wrecking things, it actually produces like new platforms, but generally just like messes up anything you're trying to do. Uh, and then occasionally, if you get enough of these shines, you can turn into like a giant cat Mario. Uh, and then it's just like kaiju battle, basically, right? It's like Godzilla, at, like versus King Kong or whatever. Um, so is this game like an extent? So it's it's separate. It's it's basically they tacked on like another game and it's even in a different engine. Right? Oh, so like, it's not like a DLC to the remake of Super Mario. No. I mean, it's not even a remake. It's a port, right? Like 3D World's a this is just a port. They called it a remaster, but that's not even like I mean, I can't tell anything. So actually there's one thing that is significantly different in the new Super Mario 3D World. Mario and everybody lose slightly faster. Um, that's the big thing. But other than that, it's pretty much the same. But then they tacked on this other game uh, that seems more like an experiment maybe than like a full-blown game because I think it's probably like... I've only played it for a couple hours, but I think it's what... Have you beat it, Edsel? It's like six hours, five hours maybe? No, um, I haven't finished the game, but I, I invested like a good six hours. I think I'm in the final part because I already unlocked the whole area of Bowser's Fury, so... It's just that I still have to collect like 20 more cat shines in order to pass the game and go battle Bowser one more time. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's, it's separate. And it was, I think I, I think it was made in the same engine as Super Mario Odyssey. Um, from what I understand. So it seems like maybe they like were experimenting with things in development and then just kind of put it to the side and then picked it back up again in part so they could charge a $60 again for 3D World. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> which I think is the ultimate goal. There you go. That's that Nintendo spirit, right? I know. Let's never forget that Nintendo stabs you in the back when you're loving it. Um, yep. Oh my god, they're so expensive. Yeah, 
I, I will say though, I found it funny because when the trailers came out, the first thing I thought when I saw Bowser's um, form, it's like, wow, so are they are they capitalizing also on um, Bowser's um, Gigantamax form, like making reference to Pokemon Sword and Shield, kind of? <laughs> <laughs> yes. and But I mean, I've been The NCU. Kind of the mario cinematic universe yeah exactly (laughs) i've been waiting for bowser to like actually be an intimidating villain like i feel like bowser has a lot of potential he's a huge fire breathing like dragon and he always ends up being kind of like wasn't he freaked me out in the first super mario the first super mario yeah he's a he's really scary in that yeah yeah he's scary in that one that first dungeon level you know, yeah. when you get him and he's breathing fire and jumping around like a maniac. Yeah, and the fire is, like, hard to predict quite yeah. where it's going to come. But then by the time you get to Sunshine, he's just chilling and he's literally, the final boss fight is in a hot tub. Like, he's just <laughs> chilling in a hot tub <laughs> with Peach yeah. and Bowser Jr. And where, the whole mystery of Bowser Jr., I don't think we can even get it. I just, Bowser Jr. is upsetting to me. Like how so, he... <laughs> really, Nate? What you're looking for is a metal version of Super Mario. Yeah, Brothers. yeah, exactly. Maybe that. just like metal Bowser from Smash Brothers. But... Isn't that just Hollow Knight? Yeah, metal Mario is actually just Hollow Knight. <laughs> um, oh my God, Nate! What the hell is played with the Mountain God? <laughs> Okay. Okay. Hang and, on. And, yeah. <laughs> okay. So this is a this is is a cool game. It's a cool game, and I like it. But it's it's really only like an hour long or so, and it's an excuse to talk about a, a bigger sort of. I wouldn't even call it a trend, but maybe a, a community really would be a better way to put it, which is um, this series of uh, games that are put out. Um, for a a purportedly haunted PlayStation 1. And what it basically is, is it's a series of, um, like, low-poly horror games. Like, that's basically the idea, is you, you put a game together and you see what you can do kind of with the uncanny of the, of the outdated, right? Using these older graphics to kind of build a sense of something ominous or, or haunted. Um, and so they released a demo disc last year that's, um, not available as a physical disc, sadly, because it would be awesome if it was, um, but a the demo disc, is, is that's these, not a disc. I like that. Yeah. <clears throat> and, and it's, um, I don't remember exactly how many it is. It's like a couple dozen, I think games, some of which are full, like fully fledged games. Some are sort of legitimately demos um that of games that aren't necessarily intended to be finished but it's this kind of collection that's based in a kind of nostalgia but in troubling that nostalgia by making it unsettling and and sort of using low poly graphics to generate um you know anxiety to to make the games kind of weirder or creepier um and so and 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 if you sort of look up haunted ps1 like they have you can find the demo disc 
um, on itch.io, which is, I think it's even still free um, right now. It's also been the subject of some jams, some really cool uh, game jams that have been like a week long or month long. Um, and I think that's actually where Plead with the Mountain God came from. Um, and so what I like about this game, having kind of played within this genre uh, um, a bit, um, this one really is a platformer. It's a it's a 3D platformer. And the opening sort of sequence is very, very Shadow of the Colossus. You're kind of, you, you have your... Your significant other is in bad shape. I think she's probably dead, but she she's in real bad shape. And you kind of carry her onto the scene. You lay her on this altar at the bottom of this tower. And then you have to kind of find your way up this tower um, as, as various... There's not even a whole lot of enemies. It's more like the way to go, even though the tower is very symmetrical, the way to go is always... Um, surprising and a little bit off kilter and a little bit like, oh, you know, I wouldn't have expected that. Um, So, and I think the way that it kind of fits into this broader haunted PS1 genre is that it's, it it is a low poly game. The soundtrack is really unsettling. There's some kind of, there's these spectral figures are kind of hovering around you and sometimes give you advice and sometimes get in your way. Um, there's a lot of cool, like little mythology built into it, and and this mountain god is clearly like a deeply um, antipathetic entity, like that doesn't want you to get to to talk to it. Um, and the goal, though, is to get there and like convince it to bring your, you know, bring your girlfriend back to life or whatever. And that's basically just a shot of the Colossus redo, but. Um, but but it, I think it would be it's a cool introduction for people who, if anything about like using nostalgia to make horror is interesting to you, or using nostalgia to build something atmospherically creepy is interesting. Uh, Plead with the Mountain God is a cool kind of introduction to what's really a pretty broad ranging uh, community. I know there's plans in the works to do a 2021 demo disc as well um because i was looking on their on their twitter about it today but it's a cool game um there's no save but you if you don't explore everything you could probably beat it in 45 minutes or so um it's it's free and it's real short but it's cool i and i think the whole idea of um having a narrative reason for why you're you're doing something weird with your graphics is uh is cool i i really i really like it there's a lot of neat stuff out there i love that there's like a whole niche of like people that are still developing essentially ps1 games that it's like become like a consistent aesthetic style yeah and they're built to be played um with a ps1 they all sort of one of the conventions of the genre so to speak is that the controls are mapped to the keyboard but they're also mapped to a ps1 uh, controller, which is kind of a neat little, a neat little touch, I think. It's also just such a funny thing when, like, I would argue that like Sony first-party studios have perfected like the smoothest AAA games of almost anybody out there, especially like Sony Monica Studio, who did like the most recent God of War or something. Like, and I love those games, right? They're they're like they're like butter smooth, and then you're like, 
got people that are like, no, 99, 1999, <laughs> that's when it peaked. You know, exactly. let's get back to the good old days. Exactly. Exactly. But I like the idea of, ta- I don't know, I just... I feel in general you like, like haunted things. There's not enough good stories about modern and postmodern haunting. Like we just it 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 took a global pandemic to bring us a movie like Host. Uh, and, and I mean, I guess there was unfriended before that, but like the, these horror movies that sort of take place in, in houses, but through the lens of a zoom call or something like that. Um, and I just, I, I think that there's so m- other media, the media of other times are so rich with hauntings and there are so many awesome opportunities that I feel like get missed in, in, in games. So yeah, I, I do like, I do like haunted stuff. More, more haunted, more haunted, uh, um, consoles, less haunted libraries. That's what I say. Roger, how many hauntings have you been through so far in Kentucky Route Zero? Um, it's a very I'm haunty only, game. It is haunty. I've just played. I think I don't think I've gotten through the first act. I just started it today, um, and I had, I had played it back in the day. Like I was, I bought the first act when it was first available. So that was like, yeah. when was that? 2011, 2012 2013, I want to say. Okay. Um, and so I played probably the first two acts. I mean, it's been so long, right? Like, um, yeah. so yeah, like I guess I didn't, the thing that really, I think made me want to revisit it, of course, was our end of the year, um, discussion with Anastasia Salter. Right. And, uh, yeah. And, uh, and I was just curious of, about going back and kind of exploring experiment like seeing the entire game in 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 sort of completion and um it's been really interesting i you know the first thing that was really fun was the the weird ghostly rpg role-playing people in the in the basement of the of the gas station right like and uh um and then also just like coming up against you know these people I mean, right now I'm going into a mine, so I don't quite know what's going to happen. But there's like a lot of really cool stuff with haunted media there, right? Where it's where they're trying to gauge uh, what this what this mine looks like based upon um, speaking into a, an, a, a microphone system, right? And so, um, yeah, I like you've just, already met the TV repair person at that point, yeah. Too. And like they, you set up the TV, and it's like. It's weird because she's like, oh, you're, the TV's messed up. It's not supposed to look like this. It's not that the TV is staticky or anything. It's literally like giving off this picture that it shouldn't give off, right? And so you're supposed to get it uh, repaired, but I don't, I'm not quite to figuring out what that entails yet. Um, but yeah, it's just a really fun game. And I, I was really intrigued by Anastasia's claim that it's all about sort of the um, post- Economic, well, and maybe you said this. Maybe you said this um, about the sort of post two thousand age kind of kind of economic recession and the fact that everyone's sort of losing uh, money and no one can keep afloat. In fact, the main character is this guy trying to sell antiques, right, and assuring everyone that they're good antiques. Um, and so it's just it's just really fascinating. It's a fascinating game, and I hadn't been back to it in a while. It was good to go back to it. So. 
Yeah, I, I interviewed Jake, uh, Jake Elliott, uh, for the site, who's, you know, one of the two developers. There's Jake, there's Tomas, uh, who is the other developer who's a little less public-facing. He strikes me as a bit shy. And then there's Ben Babbitt, who did music for it, and I think just put an album based on the music for the game, um, which is cool. Uh, but, you know, Jake, one, Jake used the word hauntological to describe the game, so there's that. Uh, <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, nothing like a little Derrida to get your uh, morning started. As, uh, as long as the interviewee <laughs> says it. Yeah, exactly. I did not say it first, just for the yeah. record. Not not uh, on tape. Not on tape. Although I, I do think Jake said it to sort of poke fun at me a little bit, but nonetheless. Um, and, uh, but like he was talking about, you know, he, like they, it's not like they quit their day jobs. Like when they started making this game, it wasn't until like episode three or four that they were able to really focus solely on that. They were designing websites in the evening and like, you know, doing like odds and end jobs. Like, you know, at that point, Jake had moved from Chicago, I think, to Kentucky between like act two and three or something. Um, you know, and his girlfriend or maybe now wife, I think, um, is from Kentucky. And so that's part of what was going on there. But uh but yeah, I mean, it's interesting to think of them like struggling to make this game and then talking about like economic struggles and hardship. Well, and I think one of the things that's really interesting is like, I mean, if you look at, you know, the history of so-called haunted media, the narrative that's usually given in uh, scholarly circles is that, um, you know, these are these are technologies that are haunting because people aren't aware of the sort of new forms of perception that are available to you when you look through a phantasmagoria in the 19th century, right? So when you first experience, um, you know, phantasmagoria was this lantern that they would put these uh, put these objects in front of and it would cast shadows on the wall and it would look like they were moving and animating. Um, and in the 19th century, this was a huge thing. No one had seen stuff like this before and it was overwhelming. Um, uh, to them. Uh, Jill and Darcy Wood uses the term the shock of the real. It's like this kind of like spectacle, right? Um, but what I find really interesting about Kentucky Route Zero is that it's almost like everything's old. Nothing's like sort of newfangled. Or, and the haunting of it is, you know, it, it's almost like these, these devices register um, a, kind of, uh, a kind of loss or they're able to express that loss in a way that the characters I haven't seen been able to do at this point. And so it's just, it's interesting that it sort of, it sort of changes that uh, relationship where the characters aren't sort of like looking at a television for the first time, for instance, but they're, they're uh, using these devices as, they're almost like um, relics of things that have been lost, maybe. Maybe. Yeah, I, I don't want to give too much away, Roger, because I want you to just have like a fresh experience of it. But I think it's funny that when they like do talk about video games in that game, they get as far as Colossal Cave Adventure, which oh, <laughs> is to say like the beginning of adventure games. So yeah. no, it's a trip. I love it. Um, yeah. I, I actually really love Act Five, which released in 2020, you know, early 2020. It's such a beautiful sort of like redemption in the ruins kind of moment of just like everything's messed up, everything's breaking down, but maybe there's still something like hope for us. Um, and maybe not, but maybe. 
So my haunted media game that I am playing, actually, this works well. I'm I'm playing Buddy Simulator 1984 because I've realized I'm actually friendless. So I decided to download a game that promised me friendship. <laughs> uh, everybody, I think Christian just told us we're not his friends. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. that I think we just That's learned exactly that on right. the podcast. Was not not yeah. already clear. I hate all of you people. <laughs> no, um, <laughs> I don't. I don't really want to be here right now. Um, this, is... <laughs> this is not safe. Um, <laughs> no, um, Buddy Simulator 1984. It's sort of like what it sounds like at first, which is you start up the game and it's just like a text prompt and it's doing one of those things that some games do where it's like a fake ms dos sort of screen and so it's like the first thing you have to do is like run directory you know and like see what roms are on your hard drive by running the like directory uh keyword and then once it does that like enlist the different like things you can run you run the different things and finally you start and you run buddy simulator 1984 and when you run it uh you're basically asked these questions and it's like, I'm an artificial intelligence friend simulator, you know? (laughs) And so you introduce it and it's like, I want to be your friend. Let me make games for you. And it starts making games for you. And at first it's just like hangman and this and that. But then it starts asking you questions like your favorite colors and like a little bit about your childhood history and things like that. And as you go on, it like starts developing more and more complex games. So I've gone from like, hangman and guess the number (laughs) Um, to you know basically like a colossal cave adventure style style text adventure right uh which was very creepy involved like a playground with like dolls and i had to like take the dolls and move them from the swings to another place and rip open one of the dolls to find a key uh, and then go into the shed where there was like a single light bulb swinging or something and it was just like you know but like getting kind of creepy and meanwhile like my buddy uh is just like super bright and cheerful and occasionally interjecting <laughs> and giving me hints when i get stuck um, <laughs> and really wants to be my friend that at various points asks me like do you have other friends oh Do my you god like them as much as you like me <laughs> so it's like creepy it's a creepy yeah. thing and sometimes you actually just have to quit the game and go away and like you come back and things have happened in the game and it's like gotten more complex. Uh, so one of these times I quit and I came back and like it went from being a text adventure to a 2D like adventure, like like more 2-bit than 8-bit graphics. So I imagine 8-bit's coming next. Uh, and I don't know how far it goes. I doubt it gets to the point where we're dealing with polygons. Um but it's definitely like uh, it's giving me Doki Doki Literature Club vibes. Like it's giving me it's not quite like messing with the files on your hard drive, uh, but it's giving me like vibes of like like I'm a little like worried I'm gonna turn around and Buddy is gonna be behind me. Um, yeah, you <laughs> know, good like stuff. yeah, I thought you would like a nail. Like I, I made would. me think of I you when totally I was playing into this. It. And it's ten dollars, you know, and it's like inventing games for you. And I don't know how much flexibility it has with the games, but it definitely like the moment where Buddy starts like displaying text in my favorite color <laughs> because he wants me to like him more. And the oh moment like I told him that. Like he asked me if I trust him, and I'm like, I don't know. And he's like, Oh, well, let's work on that. 
You know, <laughs> I'm not gonna. I don't want to work on it. Don't work on it. Get out of here. <laughs> and then I knew what friendship was. <laughs> wow. So now, now that you don't have friends, you probably feel better after playing this game, Chris. Yeah. Yeah. No, I do. I do. I feel like I have a buddy. <laughs> That's good. That's good. I can write the next my next article in your favorite color if you want. I can change the font too. Like we can make it any yeah. color you want. To you be. have to do a lot of work to be my friend, Nate. Um, yeah. No, I get. I get it. I get it. I'm working on it. I'm gonna get there. I'm gonna yeah. Get you've there. you've at least got to lead a like one shot, uh, like D and D or RPG session for us. You know, before you you enter the friend. I do zone. actually. We do need to really do that, but that's probably a, a an off podcast discussion. But we yeah, need to do yeah. that. We have plans. We, we got to get our Mark Borg. We have plans. Um, we had plans at Thanksgiving that are <laughs> that we haven't caught look, up on yet. We'll get there. What it, what is it? In true detective, pandemic time is a flat circle. Uh, <laughs> pandemic time is just. You know, it runs along the contours of Matthew McConaughey's abs. Um, yeah, that's, that's. I did actually <laughs> just rewatch True Detective. Uh, which, which wow. Is funny that I'm up. assuming what you mean by that is the first season, i.e., maybe the only first season worth watching. I don't care. Yeah. How good of oh, of course. No, I mean, for when I said, yeah, yeah, I mean the first season, but I just isn't I the third Matthew season Trump. okay? I thought the third season was all right. I thought it was all right. Um, the actor in it is really it good. What's his? Yeah, it's what's his name from. Uh, what is the movie? <laughs> it's that guy from the movie. You know, the movie? this is me when I teach. This is me when I teach. This is my this is my problem when I'm teaching. Like I can't remember any characters' names. I don't remember who wrote what book, and or why I'm talking about it. It is. Uh, it, he is from Moonlight. Yeah, Moonlight. Uh, Moonlight. Marshall Ali. Yeah, and he's gonna be Blade. He's the new Blade. Yeah, he's gonna be a lot of good things. He's he's a great yeah. actor, but even yeah. he couldn't save True Detective season three. Well, that's uh, horrible. Just barely. Um. Yeah, yeah. Let me let me do my last game because I have one more haunted game. Um. Uh, and I'll keep it brief because I'm writing about it, or I wrote about it for the website, and it's gonna come out next week when we're starting our history series of articles. Um. Uh, but I played uh, the medium, which is currently an Xbox Series X exclusive. Uh, so this eight-hour game entirely justifies me having bought this new console. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah, Actually, you know what justifies lets you it? Sleep at night, Christian. What, you know what justifies it? Arkham Asylum with no load times. Um, Whoa. Yeah, because that's what I needed. Um, but uh, the medium is an interesting okay game uh that is trying to be silent hill in 1999 with a fixed camera and a lot of silent hill kind of things and a this dual reality mechanic bloober team has called it uh which means that like you're inhabiting two realities at once and they're both on the screens and you can move your character in both and it's a game that's interesting. It's dealing with Polish history, both the history of uh, the Nazi occupation of Poland in World War II and uh, the history of Polish communism. Uh, and it's actually super interesting because of that. Uh, it, the entire game is mostly set in a Polish workers' resort. So like a kind of like communist vacation land 
that is, of course, fallen into disrepair and is now housed by ghosts that you have to settle down. And you're a medium, hence the name, the medium. So you're communicating with the dead and helping them bring to rest. And you find out about your own life and realize that you have a history with this place, of course. Uh, and I won't spoil it. Uh, but what I will say is that what is interesting about this game, in part, is how poorly they handle some of these historical things. Uh and I do actually mean it's interesting. Like, I'm not just being snarky. Like, they, this is a game that segues, that, like, transitions from dealing with, like, genocide and anti-Semitism to, like, child molestation, like, from one cutscene to another, right? And, like, from that to, like, Polish secret police disappearing people. Um, it is, like throwing all the things together and then trying to embody all of these things in a monster called the mall that keeps just following you around saying how it wants to wear your skin. Very sort of red dragon vibes. Uh, who's also voiced by Troy Baker, by the way, uh, because nothing is allowed to be released that doesn't have Troy Baker's uh, voice in it at some point. Uh, it, it doesn't do these things carefully. It does these things like a, it's a bit like the bull in the proverbial china shop it's just like sort of storming through history uh just like picking up odds and ends but it's interesting as a kind of failure to reckon with these things like you can see them struggling to reckon with a really complicated polish history at a moment where like poland is dealing with the resurgence of neo-nazism is dealing with like an abortion law that basically makes it impossible to get an abortion is dealing with like right-wing populism, uh, you know, is dealing with like Trump to the second power basically. Um, and they're trying to grapple with these things and like just tripping over themselves, but it's sort of interesting to see how they trip over themselves. And it also reminds you that horror is not just about like metaphysical evil and the things that lurk in the dark. It's also about just like trying to reckon with all of the shit that we don't want to deal with all of the stuff in our personal and our collective histories that are like ugly and hard to look at and that we have to look at. Um, and this game looks at it, but I will say that like the transition from a, a guy that gets traumatized by the fact that he's not able to save his Jewish friend from the Nazis to him then becoming a child molester is a little gross, is a little hard. I see like Edsel's eyes. He's like, he's like, bring me back to the Nintendo games. Bring me back to the Nintendo <laughs> games. But Edsel, talk to us about Little Nightmares 2. Um. Well, I'm actually gonna focus more on the first one, um, but yeah, well, if if that's okay. Um, no, um, do okay. it. Yeah, yeah. All right. Okay, awesome. Well, <laughs> wow, wow, transition. Okay, so with little nightmares, <laughs> like, there's yeah, also thanks, children. Christian. <laughs> they <laughs> yeah. don't get molested, presumably. <laughs> Here is the worst, the most horrific game ever. Now let's talk about the Edsel. <laughs> so how's, that? how's Little Nightmares? Let's do this. <laughs> the content warnings for this episode are going to be longer than the show description. <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely. Well, As we used to say in Minnesota. <laughs> <clears throat> well, 
definitely little and definitely nightmares, but besides that, um, just thinking of it as, well, going back to the platform or genre, but also thinking of it as a horror game, um, I really did enjoy a lot, the first little nightmares. It's funny because, like, when I was playing it, um, one of your best friends joined me, and it was just funny seeing her reaction every time, like, one of the <laughs> adult monsters would come out to try to capture you. And it's really interesting because at the beginning of the game, you don't know. Well, you create the idea that, well, something's going to happen to you, but the way they capture you and kind of, like, where you spawn afterwards to continue the level, like, a sort of, like, that safe haven, like, either you're in, like, the previous level where there was, like, a room full of empty beds of the children that were in the area, or the fa or in the beginning, and if you're like me, like, not careful, where I walked in and I just fell to the abyss and <laughs> just spawned back into the suitcase, I'm like, well, fuck, now I have to start all over again because I didn't put the save point, but... I don't know, I just love, I think what I loved and enjoyed more about Little Nightmares is trying to figure out the plot and kind of like where the storyline was going in the, as I was exploring this area where it seems at first that every little area of the game looks similar, but then we start exploring the different kinds of levels, like skipping the janitor, for example, um, seeing how the janitor will pack up a bunch of these wrapped, um, well, at the time, either wrap up bodies and take it somewhere, then how that led to the kitchen and you escaping from the chefs and kind of like dodging everything. But also the kind of position, well, also the kind of space you're putting, because at least with Six as the main character, like this little tiny child that's just escaping from all these areas and kind of like that awareness, like how big is the mall and kind of like the place where you're exploring like it's kind of a little bit mind-blowing in that sense because you're like shifting and then doing these sort of actions that otherwise no one else could do because you are kind of trapped in this well throughout this adult world but through the lens of this tiny child that has to escape to survive but also in the journey like is suffering through hunger and basically going for these other means in order to survive and keep moving to get out of this space. It's funny, like, I only started thinking about this when you said this, Edsel, but, you know, we tend to think of, you know, games like Little Nightmares and Inside and Limbo as being these sort of exceptions to the platformer, right? Like, they're, like, more horrific versions of our Marios uh, and our, I don't know, Rays or whatever. Um, but... I wonder actually if they're not in a certain way, like the extreme truth of those of like that genre in a way, because I feel like there's something about the way in which they capture what it's like to be little Mario to like Mario without the mushroom and something about the way in which platformers are always about like utter vulnerability. That's like the kind of vulnerability when you're a child and the fact that you play them primarily, like you start playing platformers often when you're a child. Like they're often like the games you start playing when you're young. And so there's something about like Limbo and Inside and Little Nightmares, which are all about like these vulnerable children. I wonder if that just is the platformer genre. Like even Hollow Knight or something, right? Like you're not a child, but you're this little bug that's just like exposed to the world. And I'm also... Well, going along that, I was, I was wondering too of, guess, 
how my reactions will be comparing these platforms because at least definitely Mario, like, you do have um, kind of like when an enemy defeats you, you don't have to worry because you can just find a power-up in any box and just keep going. But then with Limbo and Little Nightmares, like, you don't have that same accessibility. So it feels very real that every step you take, you do have to be careful. And usually between save points, it's like a good chunk of the game before you find another save point. So one little fall or, or an enemy capturing you, you basically have to start all over again. And in Mario's not, you just keep going. Yeah. And one of the, one of the most gratifying things at least to me, about playing a platformer, which I always think is just this, it's this weird, weird feeling that a lot of the satisfaction of getting to the end of the level is, oh, like, I never have to do that again. Yeah. And, and but it's also like, but I didn't have to do it to begin with. Like, <laughs> it's, it's a platform video game. I could have done anything I wanted with the last 10 minutes of my time. And I chose this. Like, I picked to do this. And the reason why I picked this thing to do is because I wanted to hurry up and get to the point where I'd never have to do it again. And, um, but, but, but that's not a total oxymoron either. Like that is genuinely satisfying. No, I mean like you can boil down, like I forget who it was, if it, you know, one of these game design books, I remember the author describing like every game is just like, problem solving with some friction introduced right or like problem solving with some obstacles introduced and the platforms are just like here's the obstacles right like we're not gonna like dress it up in a story usually we're not gonna try to like narrativize it and give you like all these things that dress it up and make it seem significant no there's gonna be spikes and there's gonna be a moving platform and you're gonna jump on that moving platform and try not to fall into friggin' spikes uh, you know, and it's like, there's something like so pure and wonderfully obscene about that, right? Like, it's like games in the nude or something, you know, they're just like showing what they are instead of trying to be bigger than they are, which isn't to say like platforms are wonderful, they are, but like, there's something just so straightforward about that in a way. Do we want to, I mean, I, I know you've got another game you want to talk about, Nate. Do you want to jump into that or should we jump into the the platforming conversation? Oh, it's okay. I think we're talking about platformers and we yeah, should Yeah, we're keep, talking about them. Um, yeah, we, we should keep talking about that. I, I would just say that um, I really like adaptations. I like games, game adaptations of things that originally exist in other media and, um, Somebody went to, to the trouble to make a Georges Méliès uh, film, A Trip to the Moon, into a little platform video game where you're a little dude That's with a big beard. Yeah, and you can fly around with a little umbrella. Um, and, and it's actually it's a fun little mechanic because he can't really jump very well, but he can kind of hover with his umbrella. So it's a different kind of way of handling platformers. Um Sounds a lot levels. like Princess Peach to me. Yeah, it is. It is. It's like if Princess Peach was a little old man in a kind of... Um, the levels are very uh, Super Meat Boy in that you can pretty much see the whole uh, you know, tableau of what you have to deal with at once and you have to figure out your way to navigate around it. And if you die, you just get popped back to the 
where you started, you know, in the on the screen. But it's so fun. I mean, it incorporates a lot of like neat little details. The person who made it obviously watched and rewatched the film, you know, enough times to to really stick some little Easter eggs and stuff in there. And I think it's really cool. Uh, but I just I had it on there because because um, I like adaptations and because I I was thinking about what cool platformers are are out there and i like the idea of turning a turn of the century uh fantasy movie turn of the 20th century <laughs> fantasy yeah just movie to be <laughs> into the into, early days of cinema in the, just, in the early days the early days of when platform. i saw that when I saw that in the outline, I just assumed you were like watching that movie on YouTube, Nate, and like holding a controller while watching it, you know? Like when I give my younger daughter the controller while, you know, I'm playing a game and she's just like pressing the buttons rapidly, yeah, trying to yeah. figure out whether or not she's doing anything. I just assumed you were doing that with uh, a Lumiere Brothers film. I tell you what. I, I totally forgot. No, go go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no. I was just going to say it real quick. I had a super proud moment this week when my six-year-old started doing Super Smash Brothers moves on purpose. Whoa. Like, not just, like, smashing on the, you know, the buttons, but actually being like, oh, wait, up and B is another jump, isn't it? I was like, yeah. Yeah, it is. <laughs> you and you were like, like, let's get in the Street Fighter 2 and show yeah. you how to do Hadouken, you know? Like, That's awesome. Exactly. And just so you know, you play Ryu. You don't mess around with Ken. <laughs> what? No, I'm a Ken player. Oh, Jesus. Ken is so much better than Ryu. And then we never talked about platform oh games. Oh, my God, Roger. I, don't um, know I just wanted that. to point out that... Uh, Trip to the Moon is itself an adaptation of a Jules Verne novel from the Earth to the Moon. Yeah, yeah, although it's really... Okay, now we're doing this. Now it's on. It's loose. It's loose. It's really it's loose. an adaptation of the sequel, because from the Earth to the Moon, the first version was just about them talking about the physics of building the cannon. Oh, okay, okay. And well, then Vern I... wrote a sequel... Christian's I just, I just, face. Wait, I you're just, on a podcast and the listeners can't see Christian's face. <laughs> seeing seeing I, his goal to do a gaming website just go down the drain as we fall into full 19th century nerdism. I just I love write on 19th century American literature, among other things, for a living. And even among, I think this is a bad idea. <laughs> I just love the illustration, though, of the. And I, I don't know if this was in, I don't know, remember which edition, but like they're in the bullet. Have you seen this one, Nate, where they're in the bullet yeah. and there's this really nice, like puffy couch that he has with his dog exactly. and like, it's so there's cozy. the ladder. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. yeah. It's so cozy in there. Yeah. Cough, cough, Segway, cough. Uh, <laughs> platformers. People's first platformers. platformers. There's a someone platform. Turned, and someone adapted that into a platform game. Did I mention that already? Oh, my God. There's what a platform. If, once you walk up the stairs on the ladder, there's a little platform that you can... <laughs> I hate you. Um, what were people's first platformers? I'll just say mine was Super Mario Brothers uh, and Donkey Kong, right? Like, I think I actually got introduced to them around the same time. I'm going to guess I was, like, six, so probably around 1988. Um, sounds about right to me. Uh, and it was mind-blowing, honestly. It's funny because this question is basically a version of how old are you? 
Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of, I think mine was uh, Super Mario World. Um, wow. The, oh, my gosh. Yeah, right? <laughs> Roger's the Roger. oldest on this podcast. Now you get it. Now you get it. Super Mario World. Um, but the, the first one that I really, really played carefully and, and kind of got all the way through and found this stuff was um, Yoshi's Island. Uh, yeah. Which, Unofficial uh, sequel to Super Mario World. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Pretty, pretty much. I loved that game. I mean, that game was absolutely, I, yeah, I just have the fondest memories driving up to Chicago, playing that game on the, on the Game Boy Back when the screen wasn't backlit and you couldn't see what you had to kind of like finagle it under the light in the car. Oh, man. Yeah. No, that, that was a great game. My like equivalent to that. So I played Super Mario and I played Super Mario 2 when it got imported to the U.S. Um, and turned into a Mario game. Um, <laughs> but uh, Super Mario Brothers 3. Oh, my God. Like that was, two like, is that the, was best. the moment. You said 2 is the best? I am a... Roger has I no am taste. A... <laughs> Full on to apologist. I think well, let that me it... let me like reminisce about three for just a moment before you ruin everything. Um, <laughs> so can I just say the moment that I got to the level where everything's big but you, like even when you're big Mario, it's all bigger stuff. Like that, a game could do that, you know? Because probably it was the first time that was that, pretty like, awesome. Console system had the memory to even do that, right? had the RAM to do that, like that a game could do that was just like amazing. And that you could turn into a friggin' raccoon. Uh, they introduced like Tanuki suit Mario. They like that game just brought so much to it and to the Mario series and the platformers and there were so many secrets and just oh my god. And how hard level eight was, how hard the pipe world was. Like I I have vivid visceral memories. Um and it's also one of the few games that my wife and I can bond about, right? Like, she doesn't really play games very much, um, with the exception of a handful of, like, mobile brain teaser sorts of games. But every once in a while, she will, like, bust out the Wii and play the reissue of Super Mario 3 on it, the All-Stars package on it, uh, and just go to town on it. And it's amazing. So Christian wanted to be the wizard when he grew up. He yeah, saw yeah, no. That... Yeah. Wait, yeah, was the wizard Fred Savage or was the wizard yeah, the, Fred Savage's no, brother? Fred Savage's brother. Right. I just wanted Fred to be Savage Fred Savage. Fred Savage was just some guy. He was like, hey, look at my brother. That's all he did in that movie. I know, but I watched a lot of Wonder Years and pretty much my entire, like, the future of my entire romantic life would be contingent upon, like, Winnie. So, you know, there's, like, just one step away from that. Um, but getting beyond the deep-seated weird stuff uh, to Super Mario 2, which is not a Mario game, and yet you somehow... Wow. Wow. It certainly says so on the box, Christian. <laughs> <laughs> no, my favorite memory from Super Mario 3, I will say, is I'm in my basement. It's sixth grade. My friend is playing Super Mario 3, and I'm in another room. And my friend is screaming and screaming, and I'm laughing like it's hilarious and at one point uh my friend is with another friend this other friend comes up to me and and, and he's like wouldn't you be mad too if a fish just swallowed you and i i just thought that was really funny 
<laughs> oh my god. I mean, at some point, I don't know if we have the time, but we should just have like a rage session against underwater levels in platforming yeah. games. Oh my, oh gosh, my god. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Man, the, the, I mean, the, the like every game's like sound for when you're running out of air. Like, I remember that burned into me from, like, Sonic games. Sonic 2! Sonic 2! That's what I was gonna say! That countdown and the... Oh, no! It's so bad. I feel like I was playing this when, like, I had several relatives dying of cancer at that age. (laughs) And, like, you know, it was just, like, triggering horrible things, you know? Just, like, Sonic 2 was just, like, ruining my life while I was, like, at hospice playing it or something. It was awful. Uh, And isn't Sonic 2 And mostly because of the underwater levels, not the people dying. I feel like Sonic 2 is the one where it, like, shoots you into the water and then you can't get out and then you die. Like, it's isn't that Sonic 2? Like, it has, like, the little fans and... Yeah. There's a part where it's really easy for that to happen. Um, I feel feel like... Oh, go ahead. Yeah. No, just Sonic 2 is the one where Tails is with you, and it's weird because it's almost impossible. Like, in theory, a second player can pick up and play, like, cooperatively with you at any time during the regular Sonic 2. But, um... The, the camera still only follows and centers on Sonic. So it's almost impossible. Like, like Sonic will just go through one thing, like, zip. And if you didn't go through it at exactly the same time as the Sonic person who's controlling Sonic, you're just gone. Like, you're just gone over and over <laughs> and over. We, we tried to do it together, my son and I, and it was just like, you know what, buddy? You're doing a good job of Sonic yourself. A Tails... Tails' dad is just gonna hang out, hang out on the side while you do your thing. Um, Sonic is hard because Sonic tells you go fast, but really, if you actually want to succeed in the game, you have to go slow. Right. That's ridiculous. I never want to. Why play the game if you're gonna go slow? (laughs) Because your your parents bought you a Sega when you asked for a Super Nintendo. Yes. When I played Sonic, I played. When I was playing Sonic, I wanted to play it because I couldn't have a video game of the flash like that's what mm. i wanted i wanted something that would go fast nope my no. dream was shattered yeah you yeah i got the that flash game either no <laughs> i don't think they'll ever make it they never will make it well yeah you can't do any flash games on the internet anymore Jesus, that was bad. Okay. You see what I did there? Oh, uh, <laughs> that was not. Oh, uh, yikes. Oh, my gosh. Yikes. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Edsel, what was your first platforming game that you have a memory of or a fond memory of that wasn't Super Mario 2? I guess I'm, think- I'm thinking back what other game I played with a Super Nintendo and I play, I know I play a lot of the games with the Ninja Turtles, for example, as well. Um, mm. Yeah, because I remember, I remember it being a beat it up game, and I remember like not getting past the first two levels because one, I was just ma- smashing buttons as I went along, and two, I never pressed the guard button. <laughs> like that was like not <laughs> a thing. But then I learned it is a thing if you, <laughs> if you want to survive <laughs> all the hordes of enemies. Um, but yeah, I remember just having fun. Just playing those two games, really. Yeah. Do people remember? Like, I remember those Ninja Turtles games, but do people remember the first 8-bit Ninja Turtle game? that was really hard. 
That was devastating. Is that the one where I... it was sometimes top down and sometimes side scrolling? Oh yeah. Yeah. You went around in your van at various points, like April's And you had to like swim van. through electricity and like you would almost always die. There it was like Battle Toads level of like maybe this isn't break like broken, maybe this isn't a game that you can actually beat. Uh, and I played it for years. I played it way past the Nintendo having gone out of date. Just, oh my. That I game was ridiculous. There was no reason to be Raphael <laughs> ever in that game. No. <laughs> Unless no. everyone else is dead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> thing, no, like, you had to rock, you had, you had to rock Donatello for the reach, you know? You had to, you rock Donatello or Leonardo because you needed to reach. Oh, what a horrible game. I don't know so if we should talk. Pl- yeah, there were yeah. just there were parts. I'm trying to think about the difference between side scrolling and platforming because I think it's yeah. important in platforming to be able to fall forever. Um, but I don't I don't know because then that would mean that Hollow Knight isn't a platform game, and I think that Hollow Knight is kind of a platform game. It is. It's a Metroidvania kind of. Would it, yeah, would you but that's be also because I don't. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's true. That's true, but. I don't know. What did you say? I, I didn't hear that, Christian. What did you say? I, I was just saying, maybe it's not about falling forever, but maybe it's like platforming games require that you ha- be able to fall with consequences. Right? Like that falling is going to like mess you up in some way. It's going to require some kind of like pain, <laughs> like playing pain on your part. Like, I, I feel like that's that... what's interesting, though, about Hollow Knight is that you you do have those moments. I mean, Nate, I don't know if you got to the point where you go to the like, what is it the the void or something where you have to like there's this huge pit that you go down hmm. no i don't remember seeing that i think it's where you get the void heart i'm yeah somebody somebody who listens to us is going to know hollow knight and call me out but <laughs> no they're not <laughs> let's just but hope like, we have that many listeners yeah right <laughs> i'm thinking um please. but like yeah like <laughs> And then it's not the end of the game, but it's like you get this 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 really powerful item by going to this dark place at the very bottom of the game, right? And it's this giant pit, and you're basically you have to do a controlled fall, like you're not just falling, but you have to do like a kind of platforming down kind of thing, where um, and that's what's interesting. I think that's a sort of interesting one of the many interesting innovations of that game where you take something like, you know, I, I, I think there's something to say about falling forever or this idea of falling with consequences that is being very central to the platform game and then sort of flipping that on its head and like making you do the thing that you kind of dread, right, in that moment. Yeah, and I get that. I see that. I just, and I don't know, I mean, as a, as a metal guy, I'm kind of used to endless circuitous discussions about definitions. So if this isn't interesting, just like we can move on and talk about something else. But just in terms of definitions and genres and that kind of thing, I mean, I I don't know. I think that there's a line between the Metroidvania and the platformer and that's maybe somewhere in the abyss. Because... Uh, I don't know. I mean, obviously, Castlevania, I, I I would say anyway, obviously, the early Castlevania games are not platform games. Not at all. I wouldn't say that Super Metroid... I would say that there are parts of Super Metroid, because I haven't played the earlier, the earlier ones. They're very carefully... There are parts of Super Metroid where there are certainly major consequences if you fall. 
But there are also parts where the difficulty doesn't have anything to do with the terrain as much as it's about your ability to master various combinations of buttons that let you destroy enemies. And I don't know. I don't know. Do you think platformers have to be like, I guess what I'm kind of coming up with now is that maybe in, in a platform game, I, the way I think of it, the terrain is most of the time as significant of an obstacle as the enemies in, in the game. And if the terrain itself is not dangerous to you, I'm not sure that you're playing a platform game. But I think that's, I mean, but I think that, that, that holds true for Metroid and Castlevania and Hollow Knight, right? Like you have the ports in Metroid where you have lava, if you fall into the lava. Yeah. And that's what I mean. Like there's uh, some platform parts, but the whole game, you know, isn't, I don't think necessarily falls under that. That I'd call it, I mean, I'd call it kind of a sub-genre of platforming, maybe. It's kind of a, you know. But it, there are differences. I mean, I, there's a difference between playing, you know, not all platforming games now are Metroidvanias, right? Like, um, It's tough, though, right? Because, like, every time you want to, like, like, there's part of me that wants to agree with you, Nate. Like, so I think of, like, okay, you know, but, like, most Metroidvanias revolve around this progression loop that has you getting, like, new weapons, right? And those weapons suggest that there's more of a focus on, like, enemies, except that those weapons also unlock new areas. And then when I think about, like, what's the most, like, platformery platform game that I've played in recent years, like, I'd have to put the Ori games in that uh, list, and they're totally Metroidvanias, right? Uh... You know, because I wanted to be like, yeah, maybe platform games require you to have, like, all of the skill set from the beginning, like Mario games do. Except there's plenty of games that I think are mostly, or, you know, very much platforming games that don't do that. Like the Ori games, right? Where you can pick up new skill sets and things like that as you go, even if it's pretty quickly. And even, like, because to me... The very platformiest platformer is is probably Super Meat Boy. I mean, just because it's just like, there it is. Like, there's the level. Here's what you need to do. These are the moves you have. Basically, from square one, you have access to everything that you need. And the terrain is is your enemy, right? Is what you're dealing with. But even in Super Meat Boy, you can unlock other characters to to play as which you don't have to it's not required but there are definitely levels i found where it is easier to beat it if you use the guy who can hover for a second in the air or, or these different things so do you do you feel nate that there are kind of these pure platformers anymore or i mean i i'm i'm just and i'm i don't know i'm thinking off the top of my head but it just seems that a lot of these games do those types of things, have those unlockables, they're very good marketing, right? Like, like people kind of tend to want to feel a sense of progression in that sense of becoming more powerful. Um, it seems that kind of the the Mario's, I mean, even Mario's is like that. I mean, in the sense that like, um, I don't know how it works in, in, in the newer ones, but I feel like you do get that sense of progression. When and is of that, master, uh, I don't know. Yeah, isn't that basically what Edsel was saying earlier? 
right? Yeah. That, like, yeah. The, what's cool about about the more recent ones is you have access to these other powers that you develop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Over, over. Yeah. So I wonder if, like, you know, people have just sort of, like, that idea of the pure platformer has been sort of let go in recent years. And that, and that brings up questions of, like, technology and things, right? Like, was the pure platformer primarily a memory limitation, <laughs> right? And then we've we sort of just expanded, uh, and there's still that sort of core to some degree, or maybe there's multiple cores. Maybe that's, the, maybe that's what you're hitting on, Nate, right? Is, that like, when we were playing Super Mario 3 or Super Mario World, it felt like this very centered thing. But then, like, by the time we got to, like, Metroid Prime or something, or we got to, like... Uh, Pollinator or something. There were like multiple centers, right? And maybe games like Symphony of the Night were kind of like where they started branching out in weird ways. I don't know. Um, but yeah, it's it's tricky, and I feel like we're also at the moment like, you know, one of my like favorite scholarly critics, Fred Jamison, always talks about like the way in which different like mediums like reproduce like the history of other mediums and like go through these different like moments of development. And I feel like we're in the kind of like postmodern meta moment for platformers in a lot of ways. And maybe this is just because I've been playing Mike Bithell's Thomas is Alone, which is basically a platformer featuring little two-dimensional squares and rectangles uh, with very nicely tight platforming, but it's all about, like, the the British voiceover that's talking about platforming and that's talking about, like, what's the meaning of life if all I can do is jump this high and each little <laughs> box is a different color with a different sort of, like, not even, I don't want to say a skill set because that sounds elaborate, but, like, one box like jumps this high and the shorter box can barely jump but it's small enough that it can get under certain things and the big box can float in water and barely jump but it can float in water uh and they all have these like weird egos and are upset and like very angry about their limited abilities except for the red block which has like is very clearly a model of mario and has like the mario like jump Essentially, he seems perfectly go lucky and happy, and of course, you'd want to hit him. Um, uh, I mean, what you said, I think his name's Christopher. What you said, uh, Christian, it just reminded me of Patrick Jagoda's argument that the game is sort of the ideological medium of the 21st century, right? Like, the kind of it is what film was to the 20th century in a way, right? Like, that, um, this idea of interaction, this idea of like experiencing narrative and experimenting with different forms of interaction is very much central to how we live everything right now, right? Everything is gamified. Everything's become kind of a game, something you've pointed out, y'all pointed out in your recent podcast on, uh, on GameStop, right? Um, but so like what's interesting is like the moment, I wonder if there's a kind of intersection between the moment of this sort of meta postmodern idea and the fact that games are so naturalized to us right now right that that they, that we see games everywhere and so why wouldn't we have this sort of moment of postmodern meta awareness about them what is like a what's a platformer game that folks feel like people should really go and play like if they want to like capture something about either the genre if they want to see something new about the genre like what's something that like folks would say like no go play this what are folks thinking? 
I would say Cuphead. <laughs> of course, I would say that. You I would love say that. that game. Masochism. Yeah, it's so it's great. That masochism game. That tracks. That's good. That's I good. love that it looks like. Um, I love that it has all of the features of like early 20th century animation. Uh, Roger I can't love... get enough of racist cartoons. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's just so weird and funny and uh, and aggravating and. Um, they do so many interesting things, I think, to uh, to that stuff in that game. I, I I would encourage. I mean, who hasn't heard of that or played it or been? It's also it great co op though, right? Like I've played it co op with my friend Jason, and it was just like a blast. You know, it's like there's just something about like playing with another person in that difficult of a game. That's just like great. What about you, Edsel? Is there one that you're gonna like tell that you're gonna proselytize? You're gonna make sure people play. You're gonna like force them to play if you could. Well, <laughs> well, the question is: um, Do I also want to tell people to go through the large history of of the game? Because I'm thinking of how much, for example, the Kirby series as an action platformer has developed and changed over the years. Because recently for the Nintendo Switch, I didn't enjoy very much Kirby Star Allies, especially because it makes reference to, like, lots of the major villains and individual games in past Kirby games. And it was pretty cool using them and their specific powers while also passing through levels and not just being Kirby, like, eating everyone and, like, <laughs> copying multiple, multiple different powers and just going through the game, but... Also thinking how much it's changed in terms of, I'm not just thinking like the specific focus of each Kirby game, but also kind of like it doesn't matter that the story doesn't have to connect in the Kirby series because pretty much every Kirby game is its own, you know, story to say the least. And it, there's not that pressure of connecting it or going to, or pressure that, oh, I have to play like, the past 10 games to understand what's happening in the latest game. No, you just go f you just go for it, play and enjoy it. And I think that's why I would recommend, well, specifically that last one, but any of the Kirby games to anyone who wants a taste of an action platformer. I do agree. Like, that's actually one of the beautiful things about platformers is that you don't have to make sense of it, right? There doesn't have to be the kind of cohesion in certain other sorts of games. Like, if you're playing, like, a third-person, like, action shooter or whatever, like, your Uncharted's or whatever, like, you expect a certain amount of cohesion. But if you're playing Kirby or Mario or any number of other platformers, the Rayman games, Rayman Legends or something, which is a great platformer, by the way, uh, like, you don't need cohesion. You just need challenges. You need new obstacles. You need new weird Right, that might also be another way of like Nate, like distinguishing like the quote unquote proper or pure platformer from like the Hollow Knights, the Metroidvanias, and things like that is you know break down into levels that don't need to be coherent with one another, like levels and worlds that don't require any sort of like narrative or story cohesion or motivation. Right, like it's just about experimenting with different weird shit to jump over, or jump on, or but jump through. That also does kind of funny stuff to the everything is gamified argument, though, right? I mean, because I just I was thinking about that while while everybody was talking about that earlier. Like, 
platformers to me are about like experiments in the virtual abstraction of physics like in the ability to make computers model different interesting physical equations and i mean that maybe has i definitely like wish i was good at parkour i think that would be fun like i think parkour looks really fun when i when i, I see i thought you were going to say i wish i was good at programming but i'm so much happier that you said <laughs> I wish I was good at jumping off of a dumpster onto a wall and doing a backflip yeah yeah exactly i mean anybody would like to be able to run up uh, a, a wall and do a backflip um but i don't know do you practice I, enough parkour do you practice it enough is that and really i think that's part of the problem is that are you like, just yeah. lazy i don't think i move like I don't really think I move, especially like now. I don't know that I move very much at all. Like, um, but but I don't know. I just I I wonder what platform. What am I trying to say? On the one hand, platforms kind of feel like a quintessential game, right? Like it's often your first game. It's this. It's this foundational like. I get it. Platformers are intuitive. and But there's this other weird sense in which they're just kind of there. And I actually always kind of have a hard time saying anything smart about them because they feel so devoid of, of narrative. And, like, the content almost doesn't, like, doesn't matter. Like, you could switch the sprites and that would matter on an affective level because you develop attachments to characters whether you mean to or not. But narratively, I feel like I could pretty much play a Kirby game as Wario and not really, you know, like it it wouldn't really be like Wario opens his big old mouth and eats people and then he can, you know, fart fire or whatever because that's Wario's thing. Like, I just, I, I don't know. I don't know. That might that might They're speak weird. to like all of the repurposing of the of the early sort of games like Christian mentioned Super Mario 2, right? Like I'm thinking also of Batman, the 1989 Batman Nintendo game which literally was a different game and they just put Batman in it. Um that these these are all sort of like, you know, any narrative that goes to those to those games is always just added on, right? Or like like with Super Mario, the original Super Mario, I remember like just always wondering what the heck I'm even doing. Like, what are these things that I'm fighting? Why do, why do I eat a mushroom and get bigger? And then they would have like the instruction book with these elaborate narratives. So at most, like the abstract world that you're in in the platform is like signifying this larger story perhaps, but it never really tells that story. No, it is, it is about like, melding like pure digital abstraction with like pure muscle memory right like physical twitch like there's something like yeah there's something i mean there's weirdly first there's something about the way in which early platformers and a lot of current platformers too but especially the early ones were essentially what happens like when you're playing a surrealist art project but you wouldn't blink twice when you're so used to it that there's actually nothing outrageous about it because it's just the game. 
Uh, so there's that, right? Uh, I mean, like, what's more surrealist than like getting bigger because you just ate a mushroom? Um, but there's, but you don't blink, right? Because it's just the rules of the game. Uh, there's, there's something about that, but there's also something about like the way in which platformers in general are like training for us to accept the role of abstractions in our life, right? The role of digital abstractions. Like it just makes sense. Like you just do it. Why do you jump? over this thing? Why do you jump onto that platform which floats from point A to point B? Because that's how you get to the end, right? That's it. There's no more reason that, well, why get to the end? Well, I guess there was a princess, but really, who cares? Um, <laughs> you know, like, she's yeah. in another castle, Mario, right? Like, the endless deferral. <laughs> I was never deferral. too worried about her. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, Miyamoto spent a lot of time reading... Uh, of granatology and was like it is endless deferral um <laughs> yeah i went there. that's what happened <laughs> that's christian amazing. you solved it that's exactly I right i solved it everybody else was like he he hung out in caves when he was growing up and made zelda wait when wow. was the japanese translation of oh no don't are we up, don't Roger. please don't no. okay <laughs> that's the official moment when we segue to our very final section folks which is our non-game recommendation uh, <laughs> I'm going to start. I'm going to start just to make sure we don't derail. Um, I have so many non-game recommendations that I could do, uh, including this really beautiful uh, slipcase, uh, which holds my art in the making of control. Uh, but I'm not going to do that. Um, Especially since all the podcast listeners can see what you just did so clearly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> really enjoy and it. celebrate it. Yeah. Um, instead, what I want to talk about in the most brief way is a little book called Having and Being Had by Eula Biss, uh, which is a collection of essays, I guess is the best way of putting it, like everyday like anecdotes uh, about capitalism and about living with capitalism and about writing and being a writer uh, in Chicago, um, and in New York. And, you know, it's got chapters on things like Ikea furniture. Uh, it's got chapters on like cooking. It's got chapters on feeling super bougie because you now have a garden and have bought a house. It's got chapters on working as a server. Um, and it's great. And it's super, just like accessible for learning about what capitalism is and it's funny and when you get to the end it has a set of rules that she followed for like how she wrote this book and one of the rules is that whenever she mentions money she's going to mention the exact specific amount of money that x y or z cost right and so she like mentions how much her mortgage is at one point and how embarrassed she is that she even has a mortgage and how it makes her feel weird that she has as much money as she does now even though she doesn't like she's not rich she's still adjunct labor uh at the college she teaches at um and yeah it's a cool book uh i highly recommend it um yeah so that's mine who who was the author again there christian Eula Biss. Awesome. Awesome. I'm going to try and try. Yeah, it's, it's totally. And it's also like one of the reasons I recommend it is because it is a book you can read for five minutes at a time. Yeah. Like I read it in between one thing and another because most of the chapters, most of the essays are three pages long. Yeah. What about you, Edsel? What have you got? Well, 
if anyone's looking for a really good animated series to binge watch during the weekend, um, I'm recommending Keep on the Age of the Wonder Beast. It's currently on Netflix. Um, it has three seasons with a fourth coming soon, I would say. Um, I'm just obsessed with it because... Really, well, I should start by saying, um, basically, about the concept and... So, again, there's a lot of ways I could describe this, but it's basically a post-apocalyptic... It's basically um, the world for a post-apocalyptic uh, world. <laughs> Can't vocalize today. Sorry. Anyway. But yeah, it's basically a time where humans were experimenting with a lot of mutations that eventually all the animals got mutated and become anthropomorphized versions of their forms. So, and... Basically, after that and realizing the, well, basically getting tired of the humans' oppression, they, like, fought against them and basically forced all the humans to live underground, and now the animals rule the world, basically. But then the story centers around Kipo, and this whole mystery behind, like, um, you know, like, her mother disappearing, her, her burrow, which is, like, the areas that humans are staying underground, got attacked by a mega monkey... Which is like this, which is like how that implies this huge version of an animal that's like being weaponized by the mutes and by basically the leader of them. Um, it has a lot of memorable characters, it's adventure, um, people fighting to solve this mystery, and basically to tackle lots of these restrictive notions of power and power structures. So, if anyone's really into that, I would highly recommend it. And also, I love animated series, so I guess with all those reasons, I will really, really recommend Keep on the Edge of the Wonder, Wonder Beasts. I feel like you had me with Mega Monkey. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And the Mega Monkey is a great kid. Kipo's awesome. I, I love that show. I am probably more excited for, for a new season than my son is. Like, it, it's a, that's, a, that's a good show. And Children are good excuses. Yeah, they really are. They really are. From a, yeah, I think that show does a lot of really cool stuff with ecology too. Like this idea of sharing the world with beings that are not you in really cool ways. So I think it's funny that like sharing is only a thing in like animation and children's shows. And then when you get to like adult shows, it's just like survival, the fittest competition and you yeah. know, sharing is done. We don't care what Sesame Street said. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but Nate, you've got something dark to, uh, oh, I, to darken I mean, our I days. So here's the thing. I'm always going to talk about awesome heavy music in this part. And you guys are never going <laughs> to listen to it because you're Philistines. When I die, will <laughs> I get better? The people <laughs> out there need to know need to know about Svalbard. Um, so, so Svalbard is not even, I wouldn't, <laughs> I, I wouldn't even say that. That's, that's a great team. name. It is. It's a good name. They're, they're like, they're a, they're a post, I'd say they're like a post hardcore band kind of is a better way to put it. But, um, from, from England. Um, and they, their album, when I die, will I get better, which came out, uh, last year is, is maybe one of, I think it might be my favorite album that came out last year. There's a lot... I mean, heavy music is always sort of 
doing the um you know playing playing the darkness game and and seeing kind of how you can burrow into the the nastier parts of of what it's like to be alive but um but this album really is about trying to understand what it is like to survive in the kind of of wasteland that that the world is gradually becoming in 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 a really like not not sentimental but heartfelt way like a sincere way that's not sort of playing anger and um frustration for shock value but is is really trying to use the vehicles of of sort of crescendos and harsh vocals and some really really good guitar work too by the way but but like trying to use these vehicles to really grapple with um feelings of like anhedonia and anxiety and with with some sincerity to them uh in in ways that i really appreciated um but also part of why i'm bringing it up is because it's topical because the the lead singer serena cherry is doing a a separate um project that called Noctool that she just announced this year which is uh apparently based on skyrim um and i just think that's great it's gonna be so good like the and and i love this idea of moving from this really sort of like punishingly emotional piece of music into also really really you know heavy music but but about just like your favorite video game. Like I, I really, really like that, like that transition. So um, the first, uh, the first track on that album just came out this year, and it's called Wretched Abyss, and uh, it, it, it slaps. I mean, it's, it's great. So for whoever the people are, I mean, Svalbard is not going to be the band that wins you over to this genre if you don't already kind of have a stomach for harsh vocals, at least. But. Uh, if if you're if you're the person out there who's listening to this who who already celebrates these kinds of things and you somehow slept on on this release last year it's really ah oh man it's a it's a great piece of music it's really meant a lot to me over the last couple of months so for one last neat transition we go from Wretched Abyss to Franz Fanon's Wretched of the Earth oh, with God. Roger's recommendation <laughs> of Judas and the Black Messiah. Transitions um, I don't know how many of have, So I don't know how many of all have seen this, but... Um, I saw half I, of it. Like, I would say that my caveat is I don't know this history, and so um, I fully accept any criticism of anyone who says that this isn't as historically accurate as it, as it should be. However, uh, I, I found it to be um, just sort of a, just very eye-opening in terms of understanding uh, what a threat Fred Hampton was to the powers that be and the American government. Um, I felt that Martin Sheen played a really uh, interesting uh, uh, J. Edgar Hoover, which was like such a weird cognitive dissonance for me as somebody who's seen a lot of episodes of the West Wing, um, just to see him as a very different character. Uh, Jesse Plemons, I thought was really good, um, as this, uh, FBI, um, 
uh, agent who who uh, got uh, uh, who who helped infiltrate uh, the Black Panthers um, and. Um, you know, there was just one scene in particular that I thought was just really fascinating where he, uh, Fred Hampton and a group of the Black Panthers, uh, kind of go into this, um, looks like a, I don't, I don't know if it's the Ku Klux Klan or if it's just some sort of Southern pride, uh, uh, group, radical group. Um, but they certainly had a, a, uh, um, Confederate flag up, right? And, um, you know, initially people were, you know, there was a lot of like tension between the two groups. Um, but Fred Hampton sort of like said, no, we both have the same enemy and it's, and it's, and it's, you know, it's the police. And, um, you know, just the fact that he could bring those two groups together, um, in a form of shared solidarity was just a, it was just a really powerful scene. I think particularly right now, um, where we are as a society, um, with a lot of these, a lot of these issues and to see how he could create these kind of, I mean, these kind of coalitions, um, that were very powerful, um, was, uh, just sort of a, a big reminder of, of, of what can happen when people organize, um, in effective ways. And so it was just, um, I didn't expect, I mean, I expected, I thought it, it, it looked like a good movie when I, when I, was gonna go see it. I don't generally like biopics though because I feel like they're they're kind of formulaic. There there were some formulaic elements to this to this to this film certainly, but um, you know, especially if you're not aware of the history of the Black Panthers um, or of the struggles of of that time, I would uh, very much recommend the film. Yeah, I was able to. I mean. As somebody with young kids, I usually end up watching movies in segments these days. So, like, I got to see, like, half of it this morning, or maybe it was yesterday morning. Time is a flat circle again. Uh, but I get to watch, like, half of it uh, very early in the morning. And I thought one of the coolest things about it was the way it, like, reminds you that, like, there wasn't some kind of unified like leftist front against like white supremacism or capitalism. There were a bunch of different groups that were like trying to get their vision of the future put forward, right? And so there wasn't just a Black Panther, there were all these different groups, right? There was SNCC, there was all these like groups like trying to figure out like what's the future gonna look like? And the only thing that they had in common a lot of the times was that they knew that the future that they wanted was going to be a future where like anti-black racism wasn't a thing but how to get there is a whole different question and the part of the movie i've seen i think i actually saw right through that scene you were describing where they go to like the like confederate uh like rally or whatever that it is you know and it's just like oh it was so intense and so and just the actors in that i'll just like shout out lakeith stanfield who you know folks probably know from shows like atlanta he's just like i mean he's he's having his day right now he's in a lot of great stuff and he's just you know he's like killing it um, well and i think and, he, you could see his you could see kind of the ambivalence right like of his character and i'm struggling to remember the character that he played um but you know i i you know what's interesting about that story is like um he starts out and he's you know this this he just steals cars you know he doesn't have any sense of um any of these issues and he kind of becomes radicalized 
as he's as he's supposed to be infiltrating the the Black Panthers, and um, you know they they show this at the very end. Um, sorry about the spoilers, Christian, <laughs> but they show this interview that he that he makes um, on the anniversary of of Fred Hampton's death, um, and uh, apparently commit suicide the day after this interview and so um just sort of like just sort of like reminding us that even though this character did portray the cause like it wasn't it's not a clean it's not a clear-cut story right like it's not like he's just some sort of uh like they say in the in the title judas right like he's he's um uh he's very much sort of forced into that position by an overzealous fbi an American government looking to rout leftist radicals in the period. So, yeah, no, it's it's intense, and it seems like probably well worth all of us watching. But let's call it a night. I think we figured out platformers. We know yeah. everything there is to know about Mario. We define him. We define you know, hey, metal. Hey, on a side note, when as we wrap up, can I do a thing in honor of Pokemon's anniversary? I think Edsel is going to nod yes. So. <laughs> okay, good. Good. How do you get Bulbasaur on a bus? Oh, no. How? You poke him on. <laughs> good night, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Good night. Oh, Good man. Luck. <laughs> oh.